Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, Check out their website, npteff.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with us today an amazing guest, somebody who I work very closely with. She's on another campus of our university, Dr. Kaylee Brockway. Dr. Brockway, tell us a little bit about your educational journey and how it's led you to where you're at. Sure. Hi, Scott. So I have just always known that I've wanted to be a physical therapist. That hasn't changed in all of the years of undergrad or even all the way back to elementary school. I used to go with my dad to all of his PT appointments. He was one of those frequent flyers we hear about all the time. And I just thought it looked so cool. You know, there was all these colored bands and balls. And I was like, wow, I could never get bored in a place like this. So that was always my major. That was always my goal. Through undergrad, I cemented that pretty solidly with all of my time spent in the clinic to get my observation hours. I mean, six, who, who gets 60 hours, right? I had like 1500 hours by the time I was done. Um, and then in, in PT school, I really thought that I was going to go into pediatrics and be the next PT for the Green Bay Packers or something. But I had this really great rotation in home care and it was my last clinical rotation. And I really learned everything there was to know about complex chronic disease management and that's where everything came together for me. And I ended up working there after I was done. So our hospital system that we work for had a heart and lung transplant program. And these patients were like end stage chronic disease. So this was really exciting for me. Like why, why manage one disease when you can manage six all at the same time? So that's what I got really interested in. And I was so interested in it that they asked me to teach it. Uh, I became a heart and lung transplant educator for our um, home health program and our hospital system. And that's where I really fell in love with teaching. So I worked at that home health company for just under seven years and loved every bit of it. But then we moved and I knew that when we moved, I wanted to get into education full time. I loved being a hospital educator. It was my favorite thing to do. Um, So I you know, did all the things, applied for all the right jobs and started my EDD degree. And now I'm here teaching with you. Yeah. It, uh, it's funny, the paths that we take to get into <laughs> education and academia. Again, I, for those of you who've listened to this show for many, many seasons, hey, thank you. I appreciate that. But you'll notice that early on in the seasons, I was not pro-academia. I mean, that's why we kind of started the show was both Brandon and myself had bumpy rides in, in, a, in our academic you know, journeys. And we felt like it, it was a broken system that could be done better, but we were not the ones to, to answer the question of how. So we got the experts on here to talk about it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I did not have, I, I started as a master's program, right? Uh, and then I ended up with a transitional doctorate. So I did not have the opportunity to go into like full on simulation labs, mm-hmm. uh, like you and I now have at, at the University of St. Augustine. I you know, we, we did a lot of uh, 
student-based training where our partners were the patients or our professors were the mock patients or whatever, but uh, we didn't get uh, that simulation that is currently available to a lot of universities across the country. And obviously part of it was technology that wasn't around then, right? But, uh, you know, when the dinosaurs were were roaming the earth, (laughs) but... Uh, nowadays, students have some really cool opportunities to do some high-level simulation type stuff. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So if you wouldn't mind, educate our audience a little bit about where simulation kind of comes from in the DPT curriculum. Like, how has that become a thing and how are we kind of implementing that? Tell us all you can about that. Sure. So when I went to PT school, I was really lucky to have a great instructor in my cardiovascular and pulmonary course, who I still work with today. And he was really big into simulation. So he always said that, you know, you have to be able to address these things the way that they present in real life. And the best way to do that is for us to simulate that real life experience for you. So, you know, as the cardiopulm instructor, we had people simulated cardiac arrest in the middle of class and we had to respond to it. And it was, you know, a really energetic way to learn about things. Turns out he was also one of the hospital educators for this heart and lung transplant program. And we used certain methods of simulation in that education program as well. So some of the things you talked about were, you know, like working with your partners in class. Well, that's still simulation. It's just a different kind of simulation, right? So that's what we worked on um, as part of this transplant program. But the overall concept of that is backward design, right? Like you're, you're taking how that experience looks in real life and you're backward engineering it to be a teaching and learning experience for students who hopefully have learned the individual pieces of the puzzle. And now you're giving them the frame and saying, build the puzzle in the frame. So in, in my teaching of cardiovascular and pulmonary now, if I want to give my students some experience with an open heart surgery patient, I can't go around giving people open heart surgery, right? That wouldn't be very ethical of me. So I have to, you know, break that task down. What are they going to need to know? Well, we need the anatomy of the heart vessels. We need auscultation of the heart and lungs to assess the function of those organs. We need some basic tests and measures. Um, to get that baseline patient function. And then we need to know some interventions to work best with that patient to help their recovery. And once I've taught them all the little pieces of the puzzle, I need to know that they can put it together. The most realistic way to do that would be great if we could have that a real open heart surgery patient, but obviously for many ethical reasons, we can't do that. So we have to set it up in a simulation. And the more realistic I can make that simulation, the better it represents the skills I'm assessing. So that means having a simulated patient who may be laying in a hospital bed in a home-like environment, because I was always in home care, training the simulated patient to look and act like a real patient that just had open heart surgery, even getting the moulage. So putting their incisions on them and maybe some bleeding And just for fun, I throw in a few wonky vitals responses and the students have to think a bit harder about what they need to do. So the more things that you include to make this like the real deal, that's the higher fidelity of the simulation. Yeah, I mean, so I teach patient care management too, which is a course that kind of talks about uh, patient transfers and bed mobility and all that in acute care type settings with a lot of tubes and lines and hospital beds. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of these simulations and it is like night and day when they use each other, you know, when the students use each other as, as test dummies, if you will. Right. Uh, and mock patients 
versus when they use a, a simulation type patient, right, or, or a, a standardized patient that has been trained uh, actors or whatever uh, that know how to act in that scenario and that's that setting with that diagnosis. And they've got, like you said, the wonky vital signs, the tubes and lines, the incisions, the, you know, everything's looking as real as possible. And then the patient goes to get up and stand from the bed and they have a real life simulated looking knee buckle where the knee gives out. And all of a sudden the student has to grab the gate belt, you know, tighten up on it and be there for mm -hmm. them and, and kind of, you know, step in and be the, the physical therapist. Right. Uh, and I love that about the, that course. Um, but it really does, you know, open their eyes when it's a, a patient that they don't know who is acting as if they're a real patient. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to me that we're at the point now where we are getting very high level, you know, there is a high mm -hmm. fidelity aspect to it. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what is the standard, the gold standard or the high level, the high fidelity type simulation stuff and, and some of the barriers that we're trying to face to get to that point. Because like I said, I, simulation didn't even exist when I went to PT school. So mm -hmm. we've come a long way, but I still think we have, you know, a little ways to go. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So Scott, you and I are very lucky that we work for a university that really values this type of teaching, right? So we have a lot of funding, we have a lot of resources, and that unfortunately is part of what it takes. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But high fidelity simulation in general is supposed to provide the highest degree of realism and interactivity. So what that typically means is that your students are going to need some prep time. They're going to need some training. They need skills building up to this. They may need some time to review a chart prior, just like you really would if you were seeing that patient in the hospital. Um, specific for your patient care management two class. They need to know what medications they're on. So there's, there's a lot of parts that go into prepping the student so that they are able to be as truthfully interactive with that person as possible, but it requires resources too, right? So if we think about that open heart surgery example that I was giving, you talked about the actors that are required. We have to hire actors and actors are not cheap. So we have to hire actors. We have to paint them up. We have to dress them up. And then we have to train, we have to train them and we have to train them in a scenario that we wrote. So we have to write the scenario, we have to plan the time, we have all of these other pieces. The rest of the resources are also really expensive. So if you're going to do a high fidelity inpatient complex sim, that's what we call it when you're, you're in that in, uh, inpatient complex simulation suite, an ICU room or something of that nature, you need a hospital bed few hundred to a few thousand dollars, depending on how many gizmos and gadgets it's got. And you need other furniture in that room, because there's not just a hospital bed in a hospital room. And you need some medical supplies, you need maybe that heart monitor on the wall that you're controlling from the other room, and that's a few thousand dollars. And you need your patient to know how to respond to all of those changes. So there's so much training involved, so much money involved. And the more stuff you add, and the more students you have, the more money all of that is going to cost. And you can't just have one student do the simulation. How boring would that be? That's not any good. So you'll, you need IT services, you need AV services, you need AV equipment, microphones, so that all your other students can be active observers and still learn from that scenario. And let's not forget the most important part of all of these high fidelity sims. There are some things that actors cannot act, right? Like childbirth 
or true cardiac arrest, right? So you, there's, there's a mannequin that you can get that can literally act out all of these things. And with that mannequin, you need someone to run the mannequin who knows how to use the mannequin. And if you want that to be really high fidelity, that mannequin's got to talk, bleed and sweat. So now we're talking about a hundred thousand dollars to get just the mannequin of a high fidelity scenario. So just based on cost, resources, space, and time for the instructor and the university, we're looking at a lot of barriers. Yeah, I think, you know, realistically, when I, I look at it, like you said, we're very lucky to have the, the situations that we do. And I mean, the acute care simulation room that, that we use uh, in the Austin campus has eight hospital beds in it, right? And each one has a curtain, just like if you were sharing, you know, a room with a roommate. Um, it has a chair next to it, a bedside table, the oxygen tank, the suction tank, the, the screen for vital signs and all that. Uh, you know, there's cameras and microphones there so we can record and rewatch and kind of debrief and, and all that. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, a, a, a well set up scenario, but not everybody has those, you know, those resources and the funds to do all that stuff. And, you know, I've, I've seen some pretty inventive ways to do it where they're sharing sim labs with nursing or MD or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, universities find ways to make it work. But I do think that the simulation, if we can do as high fidelity as possible, you're not always going to get that hundred thousand dollar mannequin, right? But if we can make it as real as possible, I feel like it does help translate to better student learning and better outcomes, right? I mean, I, that's the whole reason behind this is that, hey, we're trying to get you in real life settings as closely as possible without, you know, having to find somebody to be a, a true cardiac arrest, right? We don't want to do that, obviously, like you said, right? <laughs> so the, the more you compromise and the more you kind of, you know, cut corners and, and, and don't, get allocated some of those resources, right? It leads to like a little bit lower down the chain of, of like fidelity, if you will, for the yep. simulation, right? And it kind of leads to maybe a lower fidelity situation, which again, isn't the end of the world, but it is what it is. You deal with what you're given, right? You play with the cards you're dealt. So what are what are some of the things that you see then? What does it result in if, if we can't get those high level fidelity situations? What kind of things are we dealing with further down the line then? Yeah, definitely. So you you asked the question, Scott. You said, "Is it all worth it?" And that's that's exactly the question. Is it all worth it? And you mentioned debriefing, and we there are so many things that go into the instructor time to prepare these types of really high fidelity scenarios. And you and I work at an institution where it's not just us. We have a teaching team, and we all teach the same class, and we have simulations that are required that we have to do as part of the class so that every campus is getting the same experience. And that can be a pretty high pressure situation, especially when you're like me and you're a fairly new instructor. How do I go about learning how to teach my class and giving the simulation that involves all of these resources and time and training? Well, I did figure out a way to do it and I'll tell you how I did it. So I was actually the instructor for two classes in the same term with the same cohort of students and the classes had intertwined concepts. So for, for you, Scott, it was patient care management and cardiopalm. Easy peasy there. Um, 
So I took all of the faculty from both classes. It took eight people to make these simulations happen. I added pieces to each simulation to make it relevant to both courses. And I combined all four hours of lab time for both courses in a single week so that the students had the opportunity to participate as much as possible. With the help of all eight instructors and four hours of lab, we were able to successfully run these really great simulations four times each, and every student in the cohort got to participate because we used what's called a tag out method. So each student went in for three minutes, they did what they had to do, and then they tagged out the next group of students to go in and pick up exactly where they left off without any breaks in the care. So this worked really well. The students loved it. But I'm guessing that most people don't have four hours and eight faculty to pull that off. And, it, and that wasn't even including our, our simulation center faculty, which took three more people because someone had to run the vitals machine behind the curtain while I was teaching. Um, so you mentioned that the students love it. I mentioned that my students love it. Right. And we, we think that this produces better learning. But turns out that as great as high fidelity simulation sounds, it actually doesn't help students learn better than lower fidelity simulation. And I know that's probably like a sin to say that, but it's actually true. And the research supports that it is not better. So I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, you asked me, what is low fidelity simulation? That, that's what these things result in when we take away the realism, right? We get less reality, but we might get some more interactivity, which is not necessarily bad. So low fidelity simulation, you already know, you, most of you probably already do some low fidelity simulation. Um, it's anything that where you're practicing patient care tasks with a classmate acting as the patient or practicing locating your stethoscope on an anatomical model or even clicking through a virtual simulation experience on a computer. These are all low fidelity options for simulation and they can all look very different, but it basically just means that there's low resource utilization and little to no prep on the part of the student to participate well. So it's exactly the opposite of what we have for high fidelity. So based on those examples, I use a lot of low fidelity for role playing for students teaching each other about the rule of twos and heart failure management. And when I have, a, I have an instructor pretend to be a patient in lab, we all do that, right? And the students have to evaluate that lab assistant. Um, this sounds kind of like when I use my auscultation mannequin to help students hear adventitious heart and lung sounds. Now that is a little bit higher on the resource end because I have the mannequin, but the students don't need to prepare at all and they can interact with the mannequin freely. And there's nothing wrong with these types of experiences. Many students or many studies have actually shown that low fidelity simulation is no less effective than high fidelity simulation in the long run. So initially students might feel like they are getting more out of high fidelity, but all the research shows us that three months out from that experience, all their measured skills are the same. So you don't have to do this high fidelity and you can still get the same results. Yeah, I mean, when I went through it, like I said, we didn't have this high tech sim stuff, you know, and we did just fine. We, yeah. you know, I, I made it. I, I, I'm a PT at some point, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, we we did. We used our classmates a lot. We used uh, professors and lab assists and stuff, and you know, we did the best we could, and we got we got the gist of it. You know, we were able to perform the tasks and the skills that were needed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so again, I I personally like the the high fidelity stuff. I I, I you know, I'm a fan of utilizing technology and things like that. 
especially when it gets to the point of getting ready for their first practical, if that's going to be uh, in an acute care setting or a hospital type setting, I feel like it kind of eases the tension a little bit of stepping into a hospital, which may be for the first time for some of these students, uh, you know, seeing a familiar bed, a hospital bed, uh, the setup of the room, you know, some of the things that are there can kind of be like, oh yeah, I remember seeing this in lab, you know, so it's at least familiar to them and they're not walking into a completely foreign setting. You know, so I, I like things from from that aspect. Let's talk a little bit about tips, tricks, pointers, anything that you want to tell the audience that's interested in doing some of these simulations or, or utilizing uh, some of the high fidelity sim stuff. What are some things that you could give them some some options that they should think about and some things that you've learned over your uh, semesters of doing high fidelity simulation? What are what are some of the things that could be helpful for them? Well, I'm really liking a new thing that hasn't quite made it into the simulation dictionary yet, but it's kind of been called optimal fidelity simulation. So we take the best of both worlds. Um, optimal fidelity basically means that all the necessary components of high fidelity are maintained, but low fidelity components are integrated where it makes the most sense. I've seen quite a few studies where um, one was at Turo Actually, they built an entire simulation center for $500 and with only 360 square feet of space. They used a laptop, an iPad, and a webcam, and it worked beautifully. And the only flaw to optimal fidelity as it currently stands is that it doesn't use standardized patients because they're expensive and they take time and training, but there's a fix for that. So I think that it would still work really well if we used maybe faculty from other programs, students from other programs, people that are associated with our university, so they're not standardized patients, but you know they kind of know what they're going into, they don't have to be trained as much, and your students aren't familiar with them. That's really the key thing, is a standardized patient, whether they're a standardized patient actor or a standardized patient as part of your school, the students cannot be familiar with them or it will not work. So I think that there are ways to integrate standardized patients without having to pay actors to be standardized patients and still keep the low cost with good resource utilization and good interactivity without having to go above and beyond. Um, and I mentioned tag out earlier, right? So getting more students involved will always help improve the interactivity of your simulation. So any way that you can either run the simulation more times, which takes more time, more resources, more people, or find a way to get more students involved in the one time you are doing it. If you can combine lab hours with another class, that's great. Something that we're looking at doing is doing an entire simulation day on our campus that does not sit inside of any course. Instead, you just run through a set of scenarios in different settings around the campus and everybody gets to participate as either a practitioner or an active observer in all of those scenarios and everybody gets a chance that day to have a turn. So these are things that I've, I feel like have worked really well for us, especially being a newer campus. We have a lot of new faculty um, and a lot of people just haven't had the technology that we have. I'm that person too. I'm a home care therapist. If it doesn't fit in my bag, it doesn't exist to me. Um, so having all of the things that we have has been really great and using them is fun, but there are plenty of other really effective ways to do this. 
Um, and optimal fidelity doesn't have a lot of studies, not, not a lot of research behind it yet, but I'm hoping that it will hit the sweet spot of satisfying students and, and their self-efficacy needs, as well as producing quality learning outcomes. Yeah, I think the pandemic probably helped matters when it comes to optimal fidelity, right? Because we had issues where we couldn't use the sim labs or students weren't allowed on campus for a while there, right? So we had to kind of make the best of what we had. And, uh, you know, we found ways to adapt and make it work. And I think that as faculty and staff has helped people recognize to push on the things that make sense to push on and get that higher fidelity, but back off and use the, you know, online versions or, or whatever you need to do for the lower fidelity. So I like the mix. I like the best of both worlds for sure. Yeah. Uh, I definitely like that tag out method. That's not something that I was currently using. So I think I may have to look to implement that in the upcoming semesters there. So uh, hopefully the audience is getting some, some takeaways from this as well. So they can go back and implement uh, and figure out some ways uh, to best learn from this stuff. But, um, you know, Kaylee, we, we ask all of our guests this one final question. And, and that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? Why would you change it? And how would you change it? Hmm. So like I said, I'm a home care therapist. I keep it simple and I don't have a lot of stuff to rely on. All I have is myself and what I can fit in a bag. So I really think that it's important that we go back to the basics of what we know. And I tell my students that all the time, whenever they have questions, go back to the basics of what you know, even if it's as far back as go to the anatomy and what does the anatomy tell you? And I think that we really need to focus more on how to more broadly apply the basics of what we know all the way back to just anatomy because that and will inform so many of the decisions that we make clinically with my patients who have heart failure, just thinking about the anatomical changes that come along with heart failure inform many of my decisions, the physiological changes back from pathophys that come along with heart failure, um, inform my choices and how I manage those patients. I know that we're probably going to have some incontinence issues and my referral doesn't say incontinence anywhere, but I know that there's fluid overload problems that I'm going to need to address. And part of the fluid management system is impaired. So I really always push that on my students. And as far as the why, I think that there's a lot of really great clinical instructors out there, but if we want our students to broaden how they apply the basics, our clinical instructors have to point that stuff out. So I think it would be a good thing to build into the CCI, the Credentialed Clinical Instructor course, to really emphasize the basics, because that's all the students know is the basics. Emphasize how important those things are in the clinical setting and demonstrate how they're used. Yeah, I, I like that takeaway there, you know, the keep it simple, stupid method, right? The K-I-S-S. Exactly. Uh, I, I teach patient care management one as well, which to me is the foundational basics. So they take a gross anatomy one, then they take gross anatomy two and PCM one. Uh, and so again, I'm finding in PCM two and then eventually the geriatrics course that I teach that everything that we learned really started from the foundational basics of patient care management one. So exactly. if they get that down, and like I said, like, it doesn't matter what setting you go into the stuff you're learning in patient care management. One is the foundation, the, mm -hmm. the stuff you're learning in gross anatomy. That is your foundation. Once you get those first two or three semesters under your belt, 
that's everything you need to work with uh, in the world of physical therapy, then you're just layering on more complex stuff and more, more complex ideas that hopefully lead to better critical thinking and better clinical thinking as well. So, uh, you know, I love that takeaway. Uh, and also, you know, Kaylee, I love the way that you simplify a lot of these complex patients and scenarios and situations. Uh, you know, you've got just such a, a, a an easy take and approach to that. And, uh, you know, like I said, I appreciate your time and coming on to talk to the audience about all things simulation and, and, and you know, talking about some of the complex patient cases and scenarios that you use. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and just see what you're up to these days and, and, and learn about some of these uh, ways to handle complex patients uh, in social media and out there on the interwebs? Absolutely. So I'm at drbthept.com. That is my blog and website. And I will teach you all of the things that come along with managing complex patients there. And my handle is the same on Twitter. So drbthept. It's the same on Instagram. It's the same on Facebook. So you can find me at all of those places. Awesome. And we'll put all the links to that in the show notes and people can reach out to you very easily. Kaylee, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate your time and expertise. Thanks, Scott.